afternoon or evening wherever whenever we find you you're listening to episode uh question mark question mark of doth protest too much i i haven't been keeping track of the numbers as far as the episodes go uh though i know we are not quite at episode 25 uh maybe we'll make like a special episode for that for our 25th episode uh we'll do a book giveaway or something like that uh don't hold me to that but anyways, yes, you're listening to Doth Protest Too Much. And before we get into today's episode, I want to give a big thanks to our last guest, Michael B. Metz, soon to be Dr. Michael B. Metz. Um, he uh, is a New Testament PhD student out of Aberdeen in the final stages of writing his dissertation. And uh, I just imagine that is a, quite an interesting field to study. I don't know if I could personally do it myself that's a lot of languages you have to learn you have to learn uh, usually in most programs you have to learn a couple modern languages usually german or french um and as well as a i guess both biblical languages hebrew and greek and maybe some other ancient uh uh texts in there or language in there as well <laughs> a good friend of mine maybe we'll have him on the podcast some point he he is a biblical scholar uh he he uh at John Hopkins, uh, we talk time to time, and every time we uh, catch up, he's learning some new ancient language, some some of them that I've never even heard of, including a lot of dead languages. So I just, uh, uh, languages are fun. I study German myself, but uh, just uh, to try to learn five, six, seven, eight, nine different languages seems rather intimidating, and I just don't know if my brain could keep all that um, <laughs> in track. Anyways, I digress. But anyways, Michael Metz uh, joined us on our last episode. If uh, you, you haven't listened to that episode yet, I encourage you to give it a listen. Uh, he We discussed, or he discussed rather, the book that he co-wrote along with several other prominent biblical scholars. Uh, I think Michael Michael Metz is a, I think he's going to be an up and, he's an up and coming scholar. Uh, you know, he wrote, uh, the other contributors to this book uh, included uh, some, some big time N.T., New Testament, sorry, uh, scholars, um, and N.T. Wright wrote the foreword for it. So, and uh, it's available. It's called Jesus Skepticism and the Problem of History. Um, interesting book uh, describes that, uh, or basically, uh, it was an, is an argument, uh, more or less, that uh, scholars of the New Testament and of ancient texts can piece together. Um, uh, that studying Jesus in his historical context anyways is not just a futile quest or anything. Um, so even though people who have done that before have really gotten it wrong. So it's a good book. I recommend people check it out. Uh, it, it is written by uh, uh, most of the scholars, including Metz, are of an ilk that are more, I won't say conservative, but I will say um, are very much uh, opposed to the more skeptical takes of studying the new testament and the bible 
and these scholars rather hold them more, uh, the authors of this book, uh, offer a, uh, a non-skeptical, uh, <laughs> take on the Bible and trust in the reliability of the accounts and events we read in, in scripture, uh, which I think is a great comfort to believers, uh, myself. And so, <clears throat> so check that out. Check out our last episode. It was called the gospels, our faith and history, and you'll get really, uh, in great detail, the, the, uh, studies that Michael has done in that area. So an update on our show, we have t-shirts coming. Um, I maybe said that prematurely, but yes, uh, we are definitely going to go ahead and make t-shirts. I just figured, you know, our logo is so great, uh, designed by yours truly. We have such a great creative title, you know, playing off a Shakespeare line. Um, and so, you know, uh, with the steeple on it, the logo, I just, you know, I think a t-shirt, wearing will be cool. And, um, I'm going to order a batch of them and we will be selling them and the, the money will be, the proceeds will go toward a ministry of choice. I have not decided which one, but, um, but be on the lookout for that. We'll put stuff on Instagram, Facebook, and, um, we don't have a website. Well, we do have a website. We have the, the podcast hosting site and, uh, get, get the name of this podcast out there. Um, you know, and so we, in our listenership has been slowly climbing. We have had some good numbers coming in and listening to our last couple episodes and revisiting some of our older, older episodes, which really aren't that old. Our podcast is not even a year old. So, but today's topic is, uh, it's, it's kind of a two part is it was going to be a history of the diocese, the Episcopal diocese of Milwaukee. Interesting that we single out one diocese to do a history of, because there's many dioceses in the Episcopal Church. The Episcopal Church, of course, is organized that way, and uh, in in similar ways to the Catholic Church and and uh, some other churches that have you know uh, organized their individual churches or parishes uh, of a certain region into a larger uh, organized structure called a diocese. The diocese in, a, in the Episcopal Church is headed by a bishop. Again, you'll get that same type of polity, it's called church governance in a in the Roman Catholic Church and other church bodies as well. So, uh, Milwaukee, let's uh, first talk about Milwaukee. Uh, maybe some of you've been there. Maybe, uh, you know, it's it is the for some of our theology listeners, it's the home of Marquette University and some other schools that. Um, you know, so it has definitely a, theolo- a theological circle in that in that town. I'm gonna take a drink of my tea real quick. But Milwaukee has long been one of my favorite places in the world. Um, <laughs> I have kind of a personal history there. Um, my dad lived there, dad and stepmom, sorry, as well as my siblings on that side until they moved out and went to college and uh, and went into the into their respective careers. But uh, Milwaukee has been around, sorry, my dad was around in Milwaukee for yeah, about 10 years uh, before work moved him again. But Milwaukee is a great town. I visited him often. Uh, being originally from Michigan, uh, I I went over to Milwaukee uh, quite a bit to visit uh, my family there, and uh, grew to really love the town. There's a lot to do there. I, I tell a lot of people here in the South who who always talk about going up to Chicago. You know, Chicago's like a big deal uh, to them, and I say, you know, Chicago's Chicago's nice, but you know, there's a train that you can take from Chicago up to Milwaukee. It runs several times a day. It's about a 30 to 40 minute train ride. Go up to Milwaukee. It's really great. Has all the, has a lot of the same cool feel and, um, 
activity is Chicago, just on a lesser scale, <laughs> on a scale I'm more comfortable with, a little more, a little more relaxed, a little more folksy of a place. And uh, but Chicago is fun too. But if you're going to Chicago, let's say for a few days. Take one of those days and spend it in Milwaukee. You won't regret it. There's plenty of things to do. Milwaukee is one of the most densely populated metro areas today in the Midwestern United States. Uh, and one of the most ethnically diverse areas uh, in the country. But uh, historically very Germanic. In fact, I attribute to the the times I spent there as contributing to my me being kind of a Germanophile myself. Mater's is, uh, aside from being a theology student, that brings you uh, in into contact with German things quite a bit, <laughs> um, depending on what area of focus you have. But uh, Mater's, for instance, is one of the best restaurants on the planet. In my humble opinion, you simply don't know German food, at least high-end, fine-dining German food, until you've eaten at Mater's in Milwaukee, which is still there, still going. I, was, I Googled it. About a month or so ago to see, because I know the pandemic's affected different places, but uh, it, it is. There's a couple, two or three uh, historic German restaurants that were there for quite a while. Uh, Mater's is the only one left. And of course, if you like beer, there's lots of breweries in Milwaukee, as well as just in Wisconsin in general. It's kind of like the beer capital of the United States. Uh, brewing, brewing is a big part of their culture that even their baseball team is called the Brewers. And of course, before the Germans arrived, like everywhere in North America, there were, of course, people already living in these lands. Um, you had the Menominee, the Potawatomi, the Sox, and the Ojibwe are all indigenous tribes of these lands, uh, the tribe that we will particularly focus on, however, today, for at least part of the episode in a little while, are the Oneida tribe, uh, which were not actually native to the Wisconsin lands, and we will see why. So, and uh, we're talking about the Episcopal church culture of Milwaukee and wider Wisconsin today, and the Episcopal ethos, if you will, historically has a distinct uh, historically had a distinct high church slash Anglo-Catholic. We'll break that down what it means. Uh, historically had this ethos. Today, I wouldn't say it is distinctly that, uh, or at least exclusively that. Um, but it is uh, still very much in the waters there, so to speak. There's a residual high churchness. Um, so now it's probably best that uh, we explain what we mean by these terms. Uh, we may not all have uh, Episcopal slash Anglican listeners of this podcast. Uh, the podcast is certainly not Episcopal Anglican specific. We cover the broader tradition commonly called Protestantism. The history of it spanning from Reformation to modern day, um, you know, but we also cover earlier parts of the church history because theology did not emerge in a vacuum only 500 years ago. And some of our episodes have been uh, on some specific topics, though, or people in the Episcopal Anglican tradition. And that's because yours truly is a minister in that tradition. And some of our guests naturally hail from that world, too, because I've been blessed to meet and to know some fine ministers and scholars who have uh, experience and knowledge in these historical and theological matters that we cover on the on this podcast, um, and of course we have we've had guests on the uh, that are not of that tradition but know a lot about it. I'll refer you back to our episode uh, about Martin the. English church reformer, uh, Martin Bootser. The episode was called Martin Bootser, not Martin Luther. Uh, guy, he was lived around the same time as Martin Luther. 
she had a lot of the same uh shared a lot of the s- same work and sympathies and he was a fellow reformer only in England. And we have Scott Amos, who's a historian of a Presbyterian background, but has an incredible, incredible knowledge of Martin Bootser. Uh, I mean, seriously incredible. I don't think there's anyone else in the world who even knows as much, nearly knows as much about Martin Bootser as Scott Amos. Um, he is the go-to expert on Scott Amos. But I digress. Let's briefly sketch this terminology. What do I mean by high church? in Anglo-Catholic, uh, et cetera. Well, um, basically, if you go to, uh, uh, even today, not just 50 years ago, even today, if you were to go to a lot of Episcopal churches attend worship there in places like Milwaukee and in Chicago, that general area is called the Beretta belt, the Beretta, not the gun. It's a, it's like a black cap of sorts that clergy would wear. It was considered like a very high ornate form of church wear, um, of church vesting. Uh, a lot of the worship in those churches in that area are going to be more, what's the word, higher, ornate, um, uh, more ritual, more ceremony, uh, more pageantry, you could say. Uh, just kind of describing this for someone who hasn't spent a lot of time in that world. Um, similar to what you'd see in uh, a lot of, maybe a lot of the Catholic church, but even a lot of the Roman Catholic church has more uh, contemporary or more plain, or you could say low church types of worship settings. But uh, just imagine just a very elaborate, you know, chanting, incense burning, uh, just that type of high ornate worship. Anyways, you will get a lot of that in Episcopal churches in Milwaukee Episcopal and uh, Episcopal churches in, in parts of the upper Midwest called the Beretta Belt. And there's a history behind to why that is. It doesn't start in the U.S., but in England, and we'll get into that in a second. Um, now, uh, first, uh, so so Anglo-Catholics, so some of these high church worshiping types uh, identify as Anglo-Catholics uh, or are referred to as Anglo-Catholics. That word Anglo-Catholic, it's hyphenated. Take the first part, Anglo refers, of course, to Anglican, right, England. Uh, there's a connection to English the English Church, the Church of England, English Christianity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That first part signifies that. The second word, Catholic, of course. Um, well, I don't know how to break that down. Uh, just think of the Roman Catholic uh, Church for now. Uh, what they represent. They there are distinct. There's many Christian bodies, but the Roman Catholic Church has a claim to being a distinct body, um, embodying the the fullness. Uh, of the visible church then and that they are the church instituted by Christ going back to centuries and centuries and centuries of course as a protestant uh we don't have to believe all those claims but i digress the word the term anglo catholic uh uh came came about 150 200 years ago really to describe a movement of people in the episcopal slash anglican church i use those terms interchangeably within Anglicanism, uh, that identified with being not just wanting to be Roman Catholic, a lot of them don't necessarily want to be, but they, in the Catholic Church, they see something, they find resonance uh, with having worship and theology similar to the Catholic Church because they believe that, well, we'll get into that, uh, they, they basically believe that authentic Christian spirituality and worship is to be found in the more ancient practices. Um, but as we'll get into some of that his, 
some of that historiography, some of that narrative that they promote, eh, some of it's got some problems. Uh, we're not going to spend this episode really being too heavily critical of Anglo-Catholicism, uh, but we'll we'll note we'll note some critiques of it. And this is not a partisan podcast. I want to get that. I think like when I in the early days of promoting this, um, they people thought it was uh, like we're, we're arguing Protestantism. We're not arguing Protestantism on this show, but we are. Uh, just like there would be a, you might have podcast. You definitely have podcasts on on history and theology of Roman Catholicism or something. Uh, that's that's not necessarily anti-Protestant. It's just talking about Catholicism and and uh, yeah, maybe promoting it in a way, but not to the expense of anything else usually. But so it's it's the same type of thing. So um, obviously, if you you know we we have it's not a general audience podcast. People of particular interest will be more naturally drawn to this podcast, and that's fine. So um, so anyways, um, Anglo Catholic uh, belongs to. I guess kind of three different wings it's usually called of Anglicanism. Um, and I'll just briefly describe these <clears throat> evangelical Anglo-Catholic and, uh, liberal, or we'll use the word latitudinarian. And I'm going to pull some, uh, a quote on this from Rowan Williams, who is an archbishop of Canterbury. And, uh, for several years up until maybe five years ago, I'm not, I don't have to have the dates right in my head, but uh, in my living life, in our, in our lifetime, <laughs> likely, unless you're really little listening to this, Rowan Williams was an Archbishop of Canterbury, which is not like a Pope of the Church of England, but is an important leader, uh, kind of a first among equals, uh, convenes meetings where they bring together a lot of the bishops around the world that lead the Church of, or lead Anglicanism, uh, which is not just the Church of England. Uh, and, uh, so, and, but he's also, he, he writes more from the authority of a scholar, right? He is an archbishop, but I mean, he's a very, he's one of, uh, he's one of the most distinguished scholars in modern, in the modern world, in, in the Anglican world. And so he described these three corners, he calls them, I call them, he calls them corners of Anglicanism, evangelical, Anglo-Catholic, latitudinarian. He says those in the evangelical corner emphasize that, that the English Reformation, which happened 500 years ago-ish, was an affirmation of the absolute supremacy of Scripture in all matters affecting the Church. Some would, like their predecessors in the 16th century, add that the Reformation was therefore an unfinished process and that the purifying of the Church according to the Bible's principles must be taken farther in each generation. Then he says those in the Catholic wing, the Anglo-Catholic wing, We'll stress the concern of the 16th and 17th century Anglicans to preserve the forms of ministry handed down from the earliest days of the church and had a sense of the spiritual and sacramental continuity with the early fathers and the faith of the undivided church um, on a renewed sacramental life as well. And that's kind of the wing we'll be focusing on today. Then he says the liberals point out the way in which early Anglicans had to live with diversity and never bound themselves too tightly to a single confessional formula focused on specific theological principles. In contrast to some of the Reformation churches in, in Europe, like the uh, Lutherans and the followers of Calvin, I guess you call it the Reformed, who really hammered out their beliefs in the form of confessional documents. Now, this description, I think, is not perfect, admittedly. Uh, it's a simple, it's a simplified general description, but I think it's helpful. 
just describing on a basic level what these three wings are, these three corners are. There's lots of nuance that gets left out. There's a lot of historical caveats that, to these that are lost. If you're interested, go back and listen to our episode, The Work, Word of God Does the Work of God, with Reverend Sean Duncan, who identifies as an evangelical uh, in, in of these three corners. He's an evangelical. In fact, he's the president of the Evangelical Fellowship in the Anglican Communion, which is a group of Episcopalians and other Anglicans around the world to promote um, the evangelical cause. Now, it's probably getting confusing already, right? Why do we have these different parties within the church? Well, that's that's a, a, a good point, um, and, and we'll get into that. So, uh, but yes, if anyone wants to read more on that, that book that I quoted from, it's called Love's Redeeming Work. Um, it's a good intro, I think, to writings of Anglicans, because he only writes the intro. Every other chapter is uh, an excerpt from a writing, a prayer, a poem, a whatever of different Anglican men and women over the past 500 years. Um, it's, it can be a very spiritually enriching book, um, for, uh, it can be a good devotional. Uh, it can be good for intellectual inquiry, good knowledge. There's lots of good things in there about just learning about Anglicanism is holistically, I would say. But, uh, so there's, um, you know, so we described kind of those three corners, um, and it gets confusing because lots of people in the, especially those in the Episcopal Church, and some outside know of it know that Episcopalians slash Anglicans also talk about things like being high church versus low church versus broad church, and that gets really confusing because um, you know high church is usually. Uh, and Anglo-Catholic are usually seen as synonymous, but that high church does not automatically equal Anglo-Catholic. Uh, low church is usually seen as synonymous with evangelical, but low church does not automatically equal evangelical. There's been many people in their belief, their doctrine, their theology, who would be more evangelical while uh, being uh, ceremonially, ritually being having more being more high, being more high church rather than low. Uh, me being a former Lutheran, I kind of find myself in this kind of conundrum. It's not even a conundrum. I'm totally at peace with it. Uh, so, uh, and then of course, uh, the broad church and liberal or latitudinarianism, you know, broad church and liberal latitudinarianism are also really two different things. It's because these, these three terms, uh, high church, low church, and broad church are more words about worship, liturgical terms, while the other three are more theological terms. And speaking for me, for us really in this show, we're, we're concerned more about the implications of theology and not so much liturgy or worship. I'm sure there's a podcast out there that really gets into the, uh, that really studies and, and, and uh, gets into liturgy and, and discusses liturgy. And I'd be interested in listening to one of those, but that's not uh, fully what we are. <clears throat> um, now, an important point, classification and categorizing things is in our human nature. We humans categorize everything. Are you this or that? Are you a millennial or a boomer, a Republican or a Democrat, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We all know this can lead to dangerous tendencies. Um, you know, everyone approaches can approach things like a battle because they're automatically on this side of it. Uh, I had a wise friend say that in the age of social media, factionalism is this uh is it just becomes even more widespread because human beings in complex situations get reduced to you know one of two narratives it's really sad you know and so i encourage you know it's um uh, you know i think but i think most most people 
in their outlook aren't like waking up every day saying, uh, you know, I belong to the, I'm a, my allegiance is here. My allegiance is there, you know, um, realistically. So I digress again. My point is that a lot of Episcopalians also cannot be neatly fit into categories. Um, though there, yes, there are some parishes that are distinctly more high church or parishes that are distinctly more this or that, but very few are ultra intentional about carving out what kind of Episcopalian they are. And for good reason, this can lead to a factional mindset. But nevertheless, these three general expressions of Anglicanism did not emerge in a vacuum, and thus it's important to know about these and to study them because they describe how people within within a broader Christian tradition of Anglicanism have tried to find the intersection between theology, piety, practice, and expression of faith. That said, let's get into the Oxford movement briefly. I'm going to see where I am on time here uh, because I didn't expect to be spending that long talking about that. But you know what? That's okay, because I uh, will be fine. Um, you can always break this episode up into parts. You can pause it and come back to it later. I do that with everything I listen to. So the Oxford movement started in the 1830s. Uh, there, there was a lot of things going on in England uh, that, uh, the, that some in the Church of England were not happy with. Kind of that conflict, that age-old conflict of state and church, right? Uh, or temporal authority versus, I guess, the the church authority or the, you know, the spiritual, the ecclesial authority, the spiritual authority versus the secular authority, the government, right? England had passed series of legislation um, that some in the Church of England found uh, troublesome. Uh, they started to manage, uh, they started to consolidate sees or dioceses over in England and Ireland, uh, basically because for convenience sake, this will be easier if we just have the church organized this way. But the problem is the church was not doing it themselves. The government was mingling with their affairs and doing it from the outside. They also passed some legislation that had some, uh, that for instance, uh, you know, on, in matters that the church felt were important, uh, but they uh, didn't really consult the church. And so uh, the Oxford movement, finally, uh, some people said enough's enough. And uh, so there was a sermon uh, titled The Charge of National Apostasy. Pretty big, bold words. And it was preached in July of 14th, 1833. Um as a Christian uh, and and John Henry Newman marked the, this as the beginning of the Oxford um, movement, and uh, so it this is a movement that basically you know fought for the right of the church, but it wasn't just like political in that sense. It wasn't just about this political situation. Uh, there was a whole <clears throat> underlying theology behind it. Is from a it was from a certain group of students and scholars out of Oxford um, who started to uh, really set up societies that promoted um, uh, promoting uh, renewal in church architecture, renewal in older forms of church architecture. The thing is, like the Church of England in a lot of places by this time had become very, I guess, what you could say, low church, very plain in its worship, and some people thought. Um, that it, it was even uh, almost like not desecrative, but um, 
almost irreverent in a way. Uh, there was a story I, I read once, I don't remember where it was, uh, that one church was like, people would come in and the altar was kind of used for people to lay their coats and um, canes on while they went to worship. Well, obviously, yeah, that's an extreme example. I, I highly doubt like a lot of the uh, Ch Church of England was doing this and I highly doubt like those in the evangelical corner uh, were doing this uh, widespread. And so, but yeah, there was some understandable concern both for uh, lack of people saw the churches maybe becoming more irreverent, more secular. That was definitely a critique of the 17th century the and parts in the 18th century too, more so the 18th century. Those centuries, um, uh, people, a lot of people were critical of the church for that, including John Wesley, who did not, uh, was not part of this movement we're talking about. He was earlier. He, uh, and he, of course, started a group, a society within the church that wanted to get back to what the church is about, a religion of the heart. Um, a lot of Church of England church may have seemed too stiff or dry, as people saw. And, some, and there is that stereotype to this day. Uh, some people, uh, including myself, uh, we kind of picture, you know, the <laughs> worship in England is very, very monotone, very dry, very stiff, very snobby in a way, right? Uh, that's definitely not the case. I've been over there. It could be not farther from the truth, but that, there was some of that. And there was some of that back in the heyday of that, the 17th, 18th century. The Church of England, was very, the, the leadership of it was very much part of prominent families, uh, uh, really allied in a sense with the arist aristocracy, the elite of society. And so similar to... Wesley, but in a very different way, the Oxford movement, the, the who would be called the Tractarians because they wrote a series of tracts that argued against this stuff and wanted theological renewal, right? They wanted theological renewal uh, in this Oxford movement that starts in the 1830s uh, when Keeble, not Keeble, uh, was it Keeble? I just for, blanked on who it was, preached a sermon called National Apostasy. So I'm uh, saying that Engl that the government of England, the crown, not the, maybe not the crown, but at least the governing body, I don't know if they can go as far as just the crown yet, uh, were, uh, making thing, were making decisions that without the church's say, and it's not the proper place of a secular authority, right? And so, by the way, uh, Martin Luther and Calvin, <laughs> they had that, I feel like they really could remedied a lot of this in their, the not in practice, they were actually hypocritical in a sense in practice, but at least in theory, in theology, they came up with this two kingdoms. They didn't come up with it. It's it's really their development of a longstanding tradition in Christianity that uh, that there are limits of what the secular rule has and that the society we live in as Christians, as children of God, as the kingdom of God, are a, it's a different type of society than the secular society at large, right? Because and, and we're and we're rooted in something transcendent and eternal, and something that we will return to because we aren't temporal. We are eternal. We live on forever uh, with Jesus, and so uh, you know that's. Uh, anyways, I digress. So, um, so basically, they this Oxford movement eight from eighteen thirties onward. Up, you know, really the rest of the 19th century, they're setting up societies, they're promoting architecture, they're promoting ritual, they're bringing back things that had long been phased out of the Church of England. 
a lot of it was because the, the certain practices, certain things being worn in worship were seen as too Catholic. And after the Church of England had the English Reformation and, and several centuries before and broke away from Rome uh, with the Henry VIII debacle and the reforming of the church, which, we, which we've talked about in past episodes, Thomas Cramner and the English reformers. After this English Reformation, uh, the uh, after this English Reformation, some of these uh, there there became kind of almost like a superstition, some or just a wariness of looking too Catholic if we do certain things. So, and this Oxford movement was trying to bring back things that they saw as true to the early church in their mind. There's some problems with that, but they saw it as they wanted to bring back worship, ritual, architecture, and church order. Uh, that they saw as characteristic of the earlier church that the they that they felt um, the Protestant Church of England they were part of had gone too far, and so uh, we will be talking um, about that. And um, there was also uh, there was some persecution prosecution we should at least say of them early on because there were laws saying the Church of England couldn't have these types of things um, and everything, and. Um, you know, and so, but they they fought, and uh, the government became more tolerant of it, um, which I think is you know a good thing. Uh, but even uh, before that was even legal, there were churches putting up uh, rude screens, which is like the wooden uh, screen that separates the pews of people from the altar area. You'll see them in Anglo-Catholic churches today, and in, probably in some Roman Catholic churches around the world. Um, maybe not so much in the U.S. for reasons we don't have time to get into. Uh, they started to bring back wearing the Beretta, right, and other liturgical vestments, chasubles and things, before it was even uh, really legal yet. Um, but in soon time, by 1857, Mark Chapman notes, who writes, uh, he, uh, Mark Chapman writes a book, it's from the Very Short Introduction series, called Anglicanism, A Very Short Introduction, put in uh, a link to get that book. It's a great series. If you want to learn anything about anything, they have everything in there. Uh, but by 1857, um, credence tables uh, became legal again. The cross on the chancel screen became legal again. Unrestricted use of the cross as a symbol became legal again. Frontals of various colors. Oh, wow, that's surprising. I did not know that they got rid of even those. So, And that's the thing. I'm not I myself, I don't see myself as an Anglo-Catholic, but all those things we just named, I see as matters of secondary importance. If churches have them, this, again, this is my humble opinion, it's absolutely fine if they do. In fact, they can even enrich worship. And uh, But to think that they were seen as like too Romish and therefore must be outlawed, I'm just, I don't go that far. I, I, I wouldn't have gone that far. I can see why... Um, you know, I, I can sympathize a little bit with the Oxford movement, the Tractarians, because I think it's a, absurd that those things would be outlawed as if they're they're bad in themselves inherently, you know. And so um, but anyways, uh, there, here's one quote. So this is a funny quote uh, that Mark Chapman pulls out. Uh, Lord Shaftesbury uh, attended a uh, he, he was an even self-identified evangelical churchman. And he, he started to, he attended worship at one of these places, uh, oh, at St. Albans in Holborn. Uh, that brought back a lot of this ritual. And he noted in it out, this is what he said, in outward form and ritual, it is the worship of Jupiter and Juno. It was such a scene of theatrical gymnastics and singing, screaming, 
genuflections, such strange movements of the priests, their backs almost always to the people as I never saw before in a Romish temple, unquote. So <laughs> I think it's kind of funny because the, the, it's pretty, uh, you know, descri- describes it as a worship of, of Ju- Jupiter Juno, so very polemical there. But, uh, but again, I also don't, I'm not a fan of excessive ritual. And so I could see why someone who had been used to a certain form of worship for so long sees this and sees it as just so bizarre, just almost like unchristian, right? Uh, and so there's something to be, to be said about that. Um, <clears throat> so Anglo-Catholicism, um, it, it, to, it's still around today. Uh, but before we, we uh, really get into that, we'll get into some of the beliefs of Anglo-Catholicism. Uh, some of the theology behind it. Uh, you know, one thing that really the Reformation, you could argue there was not, people criticize whether there was a central thing about the Reformation. There's a lot of issues at, of debate at that time. Uh, but one was justification. Now, justification by faith, uh, which means that because of what Christ dies does on the cross for you, yes, he dies, his work on the cross, of course he rises again, that work justifies you. That um, that everyone is born, uh, with original sin. Everyone is affected by it, but Jesus work on the cross and cross justifies us that despite the fact that we are, have original sin. And despite the fact that we actively sin, uh, yes, that is true. Uh, if you're listening to this, you have actively sinned, uh, and you do have original sin. Some people don't like that idea, but, um, you know, it's the truth. And so what Jesus does on the cross justifies you that whatever thing you've committed, um, it's God doesn't hold you accountable for that. Uh, God, uh, sees you as a loved and a loved child of himself. And so, uh, so far that God would, would die for you. Uh, essentially that's, I mean, there's many ways to word it. Ju- just justification by, uh, if, you know, if there's, lots of good resources about justification and atonement theology. Uh, That was very much a central thing for Protestantism. Now, Roman Catholics also believed, they didn't believe that you, you know, that Jesus didn't die for your sins and that you got to get your own self into heaven. Some people think Catholics believe that. They really don't. But they didn't, they believed justification was was kind of a different thing. They believed that uh, what Christ's work on the cross does for you is the beginning. Uh, It, uh, what, Christ does for you, uh, the grace God gives you through what Jesus does on the cross, uh, that grace is infused into you when you become a part, when you become a believer. So when you're baptized and that infused grace becomes a part of you in a way. And I, again, I, some theologians might want to correct me because I might, I'm just kind of trying to simplify this, that infused grace works within you in your lifelong process of following uh, Jesus in your life of sanctification, right? So it's a uh, different with the Protestant emphasis is that in that moment that Jesus did that, like you are saved because there's nothing you can do on your own. So it was more of an imputed righteousness, right? Righteousness that is not your own, but yet is nevertheless given to you fully. It is Christ's righteousness, not your own, but it is given to you. While the Catholics would say Christ's righteousness becomes infused in you. It's it, some people say, you I mean, there, there were wars fought over this. People say it, well, it sounds like such a subtle difference, but 
maybe then it, it but maybe it does now, but then it wasn't. And if you really critically think about it theologically, I would say it's not just a subtle difference. But um, so, but justification, of course. So you know, now we have this Oxford movement, this Anglo-Catholic movement. They want it. They 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 are very you know they've really warmed up to who they see as you know their fellow Christians in the Roman Catholic Church, and they bringing back a lot of practice, piety, and ritual from the Catholic Church, not because, not always because it was Roman Catholic, even though some really just wanted to be Roman Catholic, and some ended up just doing that. But they saw it as, um, as you know, what the Roman Catholic Church kept and what the increasingly Protestant Church of England uh, didn't keep was a, was, was a reverent sense of what we do and what we are as Christians. And, and so the theology, some of the theology uh, that was advocated in, in the Oxford movement, in the Anglo-Catholic movement, uh, I can use, I'll, I'll just say Oxford. Well, instead of Anglo-Catholic Oxford, we'll just, I'll try to just stick with Oxford, not use it interchangeably. I know there's all these terms. I don't want to confuse people. <clears throat> but they um, basically uh, advocated a theology that would say, uh, that would, um, that would, that would kind of be similar to Roman Catholicism more than traditional Protestant doctrine. We don't have time to really get too much into it. There's a really good book called The Mind of the Oxford Movement by Owen Chadwick. And it is a, uh, the first part's kind of a history of the Oxford Movement. And Owen Chadwick's one of the great Anglican church historians of the mid-20th century. And he has a excerpt in there about justifying Faith on page 109 and from John Henry Newman, uh, who was one of the big uh, advocates uh, of it. And, and basically uh, justifying faith uh, was kind of seen in two senses with Anglo-Catholics in a way. It was saying that they basically lumped sanctification, which Protestants believe in too. It's the ongoing following of God in your life for justified Christian, they kind of lumped sanctification and justification. Um, it, it, they felt that Protestants separated that too much and hook, they have some precedents with that hooker who I would argue was very much, uh, through and through a Protestant, um, uh, had most, a lot of his theology was virtually indistinguishable from, from, uh, Calvinism. Uh, he he still spoke of justification kind of in that way of there being two justifications, the one we cannot do for ourselves. And then uh, what he said, what can be called the second justification? It didn't even seem like he really pushed for calling it that, but he said it can be seen that if you want to call it that, which is about um, how you as a justified sinner uh, uh, live, uh, you know, now live in the ways of, of righteousness and so, and not in sin anymore. And so, um, and of course, the Puritans, which were the radical Puritans, especially as they uh, these different sects that came out of Protestant, Protestantism, also but a huge emphasis on sanctification in a way that uh, the reformers would have had issues with. Uh, and they saw sanctification like if you're living a good life, a good Christian life, a good godly life, if you're doing this, this is a sign that you are justified. This is a sign that you are saved type of thing. And you still see that in Protestantism. Um, it, it, oh, the holiness movement centuries later came out of this. I get it. I get what that's about. Um, but, but while also uh, choosing not to 
put the emphasis on that they do. Because I think whenever, this is me personally speaking, whenever you get into that type of, you know, how are you, what, what you are outwardly doing, how is it verifying that you're a real Christian? I think that can become dangerous. And I think we see that today um, as well. And so uh, works righteousness, as it's called, I think, um, you know, something that the reformers had a big concern about. Uh, it wasn't just something uh, the medieval Catholic Church was doing by making people do certain uh, absurd things to be forgiven. It's also something that has pervaded in a lot of Christianity. And so, uh, but I digress. So we don't have really too much time to spend on Anglo-Catholicism because we have to get into the Milwaukee Diocese. But uh, just some books I would, oh, I would recommend. Owen Chadwick's Mind of the Oxford Movement. There's a couple other books and articles I'm going to put in the show notes. Uh, if people are interested in critiques about Anglo-Catholicism, I'm going to read one, but uh, Peter Knuckles, uh, Peter B. Knuckles, I believe, is a scholar who has written a lot about how the Oxford movement really uh, gave this historical narrative about where the church was, where it was going, where it is now because they felt they, came, they renewed it and gave it new strength and uh, corrected things. And so a lot of our uh, popular history um, has been influenced by the Oxford movement in a way that kind of clouds what the actual history was. And also uh, just kind of, it, it, it's just not always, uh, it's just not an always an accurate read. And Peter Knuckles, for instance, notes that there was always a high church uh, stream of Anglicanism even after the Reformation and before the Oxford movement. Like there was always, um, uh, it, it was an interesting group of people, uh, for instance, um, that, that they were definitely more of the uh, elite uh, uh, types of uh, church leadership, uh, but they were always there. Um, they, uh, for instance, uh, they they were kind of dismissed in later history, but um, Knuckles, uh, they, so he sought to recover what an earlier concept of high church was and uh, before the Oxford movement. And uh, he, he said for that group of people uh, in the old high churches, you could call them before the Oxford movement was even a thing. They also emphasized things that the Oxford movement would emphasize. They recognized the importance of apostolic succession. It was different, though, than what would what one would find in Tractarianism uh, or in the Oxford movement. He said the old high churchmen, as well as many evangelicals, uh, uh, go on record with stressing the importance of bishops and the episcopacy for maintenance of order. And we shouldn't see that as a, you know, like merely for order because order is important. It has implications for the body of Christ, the faithful being united of one mind and heart and spirit. Uh, and so, but for the Oxford movement, uh, apostolic succession became literally a special grace being communicated, being conferred on through the laying of hands from one bishop onto another bishop, going back to, you know, this idea that bishops can trace themselves back to the apostles. Um, I think our history shows they can trace themselves back really far, but yeah, you have to be honest, the history gets hazy at certain points. So uh, Knuckles notes how the Oxford movement, but much more an emphasis on, uh, the, the linear connection that, you know, tracing it and seeing a special grace at work. Um, but you know, the old high churchers and evangelicals would see 
The grace that is being conferred in our church is the grace being confirmed from God's word and not any sacramental action of laying on of hands. Uh, ordination wasn't always considered a sacrament, a historical note. Uh, so, and so he, he also viewed that the old high churchers, uh, had, uh, saw the supremacy of scripture as containing all things necessary for our self, our salvation. Some Oxford movement people went totally against that saying, oh, that salvation can be found in many parts. Um, and, uh, in fact, the old high churchers, uh, they believed that early church patristic writings from the early church fathers, as well as creeds, were to be valued as faithful expositions of scriptural truths, especially when there was a consensus to be found, and especially when you could read writings from various church fathers of the early centuries, and they all seemed to agree on something. And the reformers basically had this similar same view as far as anything, any uh, writing or anything apart from Scripture, especially in the early church, they would find a lot of value in it, especially if there's agreement. Um, so, uh, and uh, the old high churches believed in the ongoing life of sanctification characterized by uh, those fruits of the Spirit. And uh, and so, in, in general, godly virtues of charity, chastity, and so on. Um, so, but... I, it would. It wasn't exactly the type of theology Newman. Newman was really the father of of the Anglo Catholic, just the Oxford movement. Sorry, justification view. Um, and so uh, Peter Knuckles, I will reckon. I will recommend the book he has about that, uh, as well as Peter Toon gets really into the differences. He describes in better detail. Uh, the difference between justification on the Roman Catholic side and on the Protestant side, and talks about how Anglo, the Anglo-Catholic or the Oxford movement view of justification is, is not exactly either of those. It's very close to Roman Catholicism, though, and um, and basically that uh, kind of what I talked about earlier. Um, and uh, so, and basically how... Uh, that view is not always in line with historical Anglicanism as far as Thomas Cramner and the English reformers, especially. Um, and so, uh, I recommend those, those books. Uh, also extra movement is not without its understandable, uh, critique and, uh, an early evangelical, uh, store, Victor Storer, uh, for instance, said, uh, that the appeal made by Tractarians, was to the tradition, to the past, to history as they interpreted it, but it was not long before their theory underwent a change, which by substituting for the static, a dynamic view of the church, has brought new life and vigor to the movement. The charge may be described by saying that in place of a theory of the church as the accredited organ for the transmission of God's divine truth, in place of this was set up a theory of the church as an extension of the incarnation and the channel through which the living Christ works his age long work of redemption. So basically he, like a lot of critics say that, and it's just a general observation, the Oxford movement or the Anglo Catholic movement, uh, put much more an emphasis on the incarnation than on the atoning death of Christ. It put, it put more an emphasis on the incarnate God as person, Jesus, 
that God meets the world incarnate. And so the, an incarnational theology puts much more emphasis on that beside the saving work that happens when Jesus dies. It's more about much about how uh, the divine meets the material and divine meets our world and our lives in ways where God is and his work is, is, is visible in all parts of our lives. And, you know, that in itself is not at all bad thing. In fact, I encourage, you know, it's encouraging to, to see God at work in our lives naturally. Um, but of course the downside of this is that it elevates the church rather than being the extension or the organ for divine truth. It becomes almost, I don't want to say the truth in itself, uh, but becomes kind of the, uh, the, the bearer of that truth in a way, gosh, how am I going to say this? Uh, maybe you know where I'm getting at, but it's a, it's a, it's almost like the, I don't want to say it grants it an infallibility, but it grants it a status that really should be accorded to God alone because the church is a, uh, is a body of believers. It's an institutional body of believers. Uh, naturally, uh, you can't have the church without some organization and some institutionalization. Um, and it is, we are commanded to be in the church and part of the church. We're commanded, we're called in relationship with not just Jesus, but the fellow believers. All that's true. Um, but it's, it's not, you know, our faith is not put in the church. It's put in God would be the, the critic, the critique of the Oxford movement. Um, and Storer is not fully critical of the Oxford, um, movement. He, he says there's lots of good things about it. He said, in matter of theological study, the movement revived an interest in patristic theology. It was a movement in favor of learning to this extent that it made men more acquainted with the writing of the fathers. He also said another real strength of the movement is to be found in effect upon church life. It created a sense of corporate responsibility, made membership in the church mean something real, and quickened in clergymen and laymen alike the feeling of duty and privilege. And Anglo-Catholicism would basically uh, finishing up on the history here, finally, it would kind of take two different trajectories. Starting in the early 20th century onward, Mark Chapman made a note about it in that book, if you want to read more about it. There was a sectarian one, the one that was very, very, uh, was very, very uh, ritualist and very, very uh, Baroque <laughs> and uh, very, very sectarian in their mentality. Uh, they even brought in straight up like, Roman Missal, Roman Catholic, like like defying their own bishop. Uh, ironically, this group that put such an emphasis on—I guess we didn't even cover that part too much—but they put such an emphasis on bishops that, and the the uh, uh, the essay of bishops uh, in the church that uh, Anglicanism historically never quite went toward, even though they always had bishops. Um, they, they as much as they. They had a high view of the episcopacy of bishops. They also were very congregationalist in the way they acted. That was very much a, as far as the extreme Anglo-Catholics, and you still see that to this day. Uh, but also, he said, a much broader, the larger wing, arguably, I would say. But Chapman notes that the larger wing of Anglo-Catholicism was much more of a moderate wing. That would be the wing that Michael Ramsey came from. Um, you know, that was, uh, they didn't think that they were the only Christians in town, <laughs> basically put. Simply. So let's get into the history of the Episcopal Diocese of Milwaukee. So uh, the Episcopal Church in Wisconsin, going back to Wisconsin, we 
were briefly there. Now we're back. Uh, it began in the region now known as Green Bay. The first official work of the Episcopal Church uh, was in Green Bay. Um, Packers fans, I don't know if you're listening, but the area was settled by the Oneida tribe before the arrival of the pioneer and missionary Bishop Jackson Kemper. Now I'm going to uh, pull up a link on Jackson Kemper. Jackson Kemper was an early missionary bishop, born in 1789. Um, he was the bishop of Wisconsin from 1859 to 1870. I'm going to put a link from this uh, lectionary page. It gives a full, more fuller biography of him. Um, he was a bishop. He uh, spent most the rest most of his time and career in Wisconsin. But he was a missionary bishop, and for you know for the brief history on that, missionary bishops were basically people like Jackson Kemper, Leonidas Polk in the South, which we've done did a whole episode on, and you'll get more of the history of that missionary bishop uh, thing that the Episcopal Church decided to do in the early 1800s. Uh, our episode with Cheryl White on Leonidas Polk. And then, of course, there's like Philander Chase. There's a few other people. These were bishops that went out as the country was moving westward to spread the Episcopal Church. Jackson Kemper was the one that really uh, his efforts were in this kind of region of uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and so on, the upper Midwest region. Uh, so you can read his biography. I'll put a link. Now, the, the United tribe, the Oneidas were originally up until 1820s, based in New York, the larger Iroquois nation. They were missionized as far back as before the Revolutionary War by the Society of the Propagation of the Gospel, SPG. SPG was a society founded by English high churchmen. Wait a minute, high churchmen in the Revolutionary War time? This is before the Oxford Movement. Right. That old high church party, the old Tory party, that is the uh, group that was the uh, type of group that SBG was. And so from early on, these early indigenous who were converted to Anglican Christianity, that was their expression of Christianity. It was, a high it was the high church form. And they can really be credited with why historically Wisconsin was that way as well. SBG was a society founded by them, as well as Thomas Bray, to convert uh, Native Americans to Christianity. Uh, these Oneidas were moved by the federal government out west. They were accompanied by Eleazar Williams, who officiated prayer book services through the 1820s to the Oneidas in their new location. So he was part Oneida. Um, he had mixed ethnicity. And uh, he's very interesting, uh, maybe eccentric type of figure. Uh, he was a a deacon, I believe, in the Episcopal Church. And there's a link I'm going to post to him, a full biography of him. He claimed to be a lost dauphin of uh, France. So uh, he, 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 there was a, a child of Louis the, the son, uh, Louis uh, the 16th, Marie Antoinette. Uh, there was, a, there was a, a son, a lost son they had, a uh, small child given. Uh, to the Indians at kan Kanawaki to raise as their own. Uh, this guy claimed to be that person. Uh, wherever you fall on that, uh, it's an interesting historical note, but uh, I will put a link up to that if you're interested. 
So after the establishment of a chapel in 1825, the Episcopal Church's Office of Domestic Missions, uh, which was really the group behind this missionary bishop effort, uh, they hadn't. They actually hadn't uh, created these missionary bishop uh, uh, group yet. They did have missionary priests still, at, still at this time, or by this time at least. Uh, Reverend Richard Cadle was one such priest. Spent some time in Detroit. He helped found St. Paul's Episcopal Church. He was in Detroit which is now the Episcopal Cathedral for the Diocese of Michigan. He was sent to Wisconsin to, uh, after they sent him to Michigan, he was sent to Wisconsin to explore building a mission school for Native American children. And by 1829, Cato moved to the Green Bay area permanently to be a priest in charge of that mission. Uh, there's, an, there's a link uh, to a biography. I will put on uh, show notes for him as well. Now, the school had several challenges. The school that he was uh, sent to be in charge of um, had several challenges. It was opposed by French Roman Catholic missionaries on one end because uh, that they were the major religious missionary body in Wisconsin. They wanted to missionize uh, the area. They wanted to convert the indigenous people. Um, so they had that, and then... Um, they also, uh, the school had a rigidity to it and had harsh, severe punishments for insubordination. Uh, Jackson Kemper was sent to uh, conciliate to help. And so him and Cato were kind of putting this effort to, um, you know, bring peace. But looking in Jackson Kemper's diary, uh, he kept during this time in Green. Green Bay. One can notice the characteristics of this t of the time and his observation of the indigenous and the words he used to describe them. He described them as almost all looked very ugly and dirty, unquote, and, quote, a melancholy display, unquote, um, taken from the book Early Episcopalians of Wisconsin, which had a copy of that letter. He also said the Oneidas were considerably civilized, but too many fell victim to whiskey's direful effects. Now, this is not to demean Kemper nor his work in building what would become a notable church presence uh, in Milwaukee to this day, but this does illustrate for us a time of assumed superiority of the customs of European Americans, right? Uh, one can see in the statement the general mentality, uh, missionary mentality that many had of Native Americans, unfortunately. And we can see why the Episcopal Church in more recent times has released statements like the repudiation of the doctrine of discovery, repenting of an attitude of the past that, while being as characteristic of the time, was nevertheless negligent in many regards, and it's leading to the damage inflicted upon uh, Native American lives. Uh, and so it's part of the Church's history. Um, it's not to conceal it, but to learn from it as we continue to explore the contemporary notions of evangelism uh, and so, which is always a fine line, right? When, when is something evangelizing? When is it not? I think it's pretty clear cut in instances of forcefully proselytizing, forcefully, you know, there's obvious things that are not evangelism. Uh, but also, uh, is evangelism basically saying like, uh, is it basically being indifferent to making more Christians, spreading the good news, right? These are serious questions that, um, you know, 
get raised and are being raised, rightfully so. So in 1836, the church presence in Wisconsin became the proper entity of the church in the territory of Wisconsin. Not yet a diocese. But prior to 1836, Wisconsin was not considered a territory by the federal government. So therefore, the Episcopal Church missionary establishments there floated through several different jurisdictions. They were under a bishop of Ohio for some time, bishop of Illinois for some time, <clears throat> under the bishop of Michigan for a part of 1836, until Wisconsin became a territory in the country. It became a state later. And Jackson Kemper was consecrated as missionary bishop, a newly created title for ecclesiastical regions that were not yet or not yet formally diocese of the church in the territory of Wisconsin. In 1847, the Diocese of Wisconsin was organized and held its first uh, convention. It would become the Diocese of Milwaukee in 1886. Um, naturally, as more people became baptized and communicants of the Episcopal Church, uh, you see this a lot, where uh, as the church grows, dies, they, they make dioceses cover a smaller regional area, higher concentration. Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> Milwaukee Diocese, sorry, Diocese of Wisconsin slash Milwaukee has had a rich and relatively well-documented history. Um, and we see a distinct culture and ethos of the Diocese of Milwaukee and Wisconsin Episcopalianism, if you want to call it that, in general, carried on for many years, which one can still get a general sense of in the diocese to this day. <clears throat> Historians David Hine and Gardner Shattuck Jr., mentioned that Kemper's churchmanship and the effect it had on the regions he served as a missionary in their book, The Episcopalians, say, Influenced by Kemper's high church beliefs, a strong Catholic ethos soon developed among the clergy and a laity of the Episcopal Church in that area. In Reverend Harold Wagner's History of the Diocese, he notes that the time he wrote this book in 1947, that the church in Wisconsin is known throughout the nation today as Catholic, believing not only in the orthodox doctrine of the historic Catholic Church, but also in the visible witness to that ancient heritage with proper ornaments give. So, and again, we covered the history of what what did that stuff all come from? Oxford Movement originally. And uh, <clears throat> looking to a sermon preached at All Saints Cathedral in Milwaukee, which is the cathedral of the diocese today. It's a beautiful cathedral, beautiful triptych, not triptych, um, Oh, I forget the name of it. I don't know all these uh, high churchy Latin terms. But it's uh, above the high altar. It's beautiful. I think it's Thomas Beckett's uh, Joan of Arc, different saints. Uh, St. Saint Francis of Assisi are, there's wood carvings of them painted too. Very, very beautiful. Um, all Saints, uh, Father Fayette Durlin says, preached at All Saints, there's a well-defined and generally recognized Wisconsin type of churchmanship. Unquote. <clears throat> so this type of churchmanship, you know, largely stemmed from the connection to the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, uh, which came out of that, the old high church party. Uh, the high church leanings of influential people in the early years, dioceses like Kemper, DeCoven, and Breck, who all came out of General Theological Seminary, which is New York, is still a seminary today, uh, <clears throat> that had a, its own kind of high church ethos. Um and uh, those three guys that I named out of general uh, founded Neshota House, a seminary in the Episcopal Church in Delafield, Wisconsin, still around to this day, one of the 
larger Episcopal seminaries, uh, I think, um, though they have a mixed group of students from different backgrounds there studying divinity. Uh, and that seminary is known today for its high church worship and Anglo-Catholic theology to this day. I believe we have some to show to listeners of our show. Uh, some, though we're a Protestant podcast, we have probably a few more. I know we have some more Trinity School ministry listeners and uh, <clears throat> some Virginia Theological Seminary listeners. And listeners from wherever you come from, we love that you're listening. Um, so while this, while the Anglo-Catholic theology doesn't characterize every parish within the diocese, uh, for instance, a uh, good friend of mine, Gary Mannings, the priest of Trinity Wauwatosa, uh, which I attended in during my time whenever I was in Wisconsin. Um, it's a, a great church, but it'd be more broad church to be, you know, say, to say. But um, so not not it doesn't every parish might not be characterized by this either currently or historically, but there is noticeably in Wisconsin in generally speaking, noticeably a a rooted high churchmanship. Uh, so now James DeCoven, an early graduate of General Theological Seminary, he began, this guy is a, someone who began his priestly career in Northwest Wisconsin Territory as a rector of a church in Delafield. <clears throat> um, Wisconsin historian Thomas Reeves describes him as an advanced high churchman or ritualist, uncompromisingly committed to Catholic liturgy ceremonial and architecture, unquote. Now, his presence at the General Convention during the 1860s and 70s had a significant effect on the Episcopal Church at large. During this part of the 19th century, there was an arguably much more noticeable uh, division in the Episcopal Church regarding distinct parties of churchmanship than today. <laughs> so some of this whole high church versus low, this is really, and it was the heyday of that. It was brought on by the Oxford movement and the tensions there. DeCoven became the poster child of the ritualist high church party in these debates, arguing, apparently convincingly, against efforts made and against canons proposed for the convention to curtail high church ritualism. He was promoting high church ritualism since and today. The Episcopal Church tolerates a broad spectrum of ritual, largely in part to DeCoven preventing this canonical restriction. And again, I probably have lots of differences with James DeCoven, but I totally like that he did that. Um, DeCoven became especially controversial in the area of Eucharistic doctrine or theology of Holy Communion, particularly in the, his recognition of the practice of adoration. That's when people kneel and pray in the pews when the uh, tabernacle, the box with the host, is brought out. It's like praying to because, right, it goes back to this incarnational theology Jesus is present in the bread, then he can be worshipped and prayed to in the bread, um, right? Some people have issues with that, some don't. Many in the diocese, including people of high church uh, persuasion, felt that that was too close when DeCoven was practicing this. They thought it was too close to the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation and or problematic. So I should note. You don't have to be a transubstantiationist to believe in the real presence of Christ. Many Episcopalians and Anglicans today uh, believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Historically, Luther believed in the real Christ of the Eucharist. Uh, he famously said, I'd rather drink blood with the Pope than wine with the enthusiasts. And what he, that was a polemic uh, hyperbole he uh, geared against the Reformed. 
So <laughs> we're going to have an episode on Luther and Zwingli's debate on that, by the way, in a couple of months with Jack Kilcrease. Uh, he's joining us back for the show. Uh, and so anyways, uh, today's legacy is DeCoven's legacy is appreciated. His memory lives on the diocese through the DeCoven Center. Buildings and grounds previously belonging to the Racine College where DeCoven had been the warden of. And now he it hosts a variety of diocesan functions. Neshota House, located in the Diocese of Milwaukee, had its beginnings in 1840. Uh, we already noted uh, that. Uh, greatly inspired by Bishop Kemper, Jackson Kemper, territorial Bishop Jackson Kemper. Well, I guess he became the bishop, bishop when it became a diocese because it was a state. Um, Wisconsin was a state. Anyways, Kemper uh, had called for the need to train priests in the Midwest. So the Shota House's trademark regimen of worship, prayer, and study that it holds to this day traces itself back to how these several men developed a structure based off this vision of what priestly formation should look like. Highly influenced by the Oxford Movement theology and Anglo-Catholic spirituality. The Reverend, sorry, the Right Reverend Donald H.V. Halleck, son of former bishop. So, sorry, no. This is the son. So just the Reverend Donald Halleck, son of a former bishop in Milwaukee who will be discussed later. Uh, an alumnus of Neshota once wrote, the peculiar, the peculiar genius of Neshota has always been its emphasis upon the spiritual life of the students. The heart of the institution has been as much in the chapel as in the library. So uh, a Neshota house serves not just dwelling place for Anglo-Catholic spirituality, but also for theological orthodoxy, small o, and conservative responses to some of the more liberal voices within the Episcopal Church. Longtime President Azel Dow Cole, I think his name is, preached in his first sermon and addressed in 1885 to the seminary about what he saw as challenges. Oh, sorry, he preached in his last sermon, not his first. What he saw as challenges that the church as the body of Christ faced in it, he identifies biblical higher criticism, right? We get some of that. Michael Metz talks about that in our last episode. So he's, he identified these issues the church of body was facing as biblical higher criticism, uh, especially with its treatment of Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and their foretelling of Christ, right? These are classic Old Testament passages that Christians traditionally viewed as the foretelling of the Messiah, which would be Jesus, Biblical higher criticism says, no, you can't impose that read, the interpretation onto Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 anymore. And a secular philosophy is evils that afflict the church, right? So again, a lot of history there. We don't have time to get into, but a lot of continental philosophy uh, could be seen as having effects on the old theological orthodoxy. And what I mean by orthodoxy, of course, is uh, belief and adherence to uh, the propositions of the creed. And uh, so that's what, I mean, there's lots to unpack there, but it's not just, <clears throat> importantly, it's not just intellectual assent to beliefs. I think true orthodoxy involves involves that, but it also involves, uh, it's a lot more of a holistic thing. Um, and so Cole was well-beloved. This guy preached that by the community in Neshota, Interestingly, it is alleged that his ghost can and has been seen on the grounds of Neshota. Ooh. Okay, I'll cut that out. That was really lame. But no, that's true. They they think his ghost is there. Um, 
So the history. So I spent some time. That a lot of that was taken from a book uh, that I mentioned earlier that I'm going to put a show note to. But I spent some time digging in the archives. In uh, this is someone I know. I'm such a church dork, right? I had such a fascination which with learning more about this uh, diocese that I I uh, dug up. I spent some time digging up some stuff uh, aboard the recent history because that book was published in 1947. Uh, and a lot's gone on since 1947, especially a lot in the Episcopal Church. Um, so there's a there's lots of uh you know the, the Episcopalian, which I think was a yeah a local publication from the diocese. Uh, there's lots of those kept in those in the archives in down. I don't remember where they are in downtown Milwaukee, but they're there. There's state archives, and they have boxes and archives of the Episcopal Diocese of Milwaukee. Um. And over the years, uh, let's just say the Episcopal Church and mainline Protestant denominations overall wrestled with, been challenged by, and been divided by how the church is to speak to contemporary issues, ranging from women's ordination to human sexuality. <clears throat> also, this period of mainline Protestantism and Roman Catholicism in America alike was characterized by reforms and renewals, both liturgically and theologically. Um, so... First, we'll get into a uh, kind of interesting note, ecumenism. Episcopal, or church, the Episcopal Churches in Milwaukee, sorry, the Diocese of Milwaukee has had an uh, interesting history of that. The Diocese of Milwaukee is in a covenanted relationship with the ELCA Synod of Southern Wisconsin, and that's Lutheran, and the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Milwaukee. The Diocese of Milwaukee had had some notable ecumenical activity within the past 60 years at the 137th diocesan convention in October of 1984. The annual report informs us under the item of ecumenical relation of St. Paul's Episcopal Church in downtown Milwaukee's exceptional, it, sorry, I, I worded that weirdly. It informs us of St. Paul in downtown Milwaukee's exceptional work with Episcopal Lutheran relations as the congregation hosted at the time a local Lutheran community. Um, St. Paul's, people jokingly call St. Paul's in Milwaukee Mr. Paul's. <laughs> so low you, can, you can't crawl under it uh, because of its uh, very low church worship uh, as opposed to what you get across the street over at All Saints, high church worship. <clears throat> um, now Lutherans, on that note, have had an actually an interesting place in Wisconsin Episcopalian history, dating back to the formation of the diocese, the first graduate of Neshota House was a Scandinavian Lutheran named Gustav Anonius. Anonius actually ministered to several Scandinavian congregations that were Lutheran in doctrine and worship, but were part of the Episcopal diocese because of the compatibility that they found with Episcopalians at the time, mainly in their um, mainly in their worship. So, any, if anyone knows anything about uh, Lutheranism was in Scandinavia as opposed to Germany. Lutheran churches there, uh, while they retained the historic episcopate, they retained a lot of the worship from the pre from before the Reformation. They basically it's, it was very much a top down Reformation there that the for for various reasons uh, they the monarchs decided to. They wanted the churches of their lands to leave Roman Catholicism, but they kept worship very uh, same. There was not the issues that were being raised over some a lot of the ceremony worship that you got in other parts of the continent or in German Lutheranism or in the Church of England, which 
everyone fought about worship more than theology. Even. So, um, uh, so anyways, a group of these immigrated, uh, Scandinavian Lutherans found home with the Episcopalians more in, um, uh, Wisconsin than they did with other Lutherans. And part of that also was wanting to become Anglicized, at least being able to speak English, worshiping in their own tongue, uh, worshiping in English tongue had been around in Episcopal churches from the start because <laughs> it was the only tongue because it was English. While a lot of Lutherans came from ethnic groups uh, like Scandinavian and German who didn't really—English worship in, in Lutheranism was not the norm until after World War One. about so. Uh, Unonius, going back, he was the first graduate in Neshota, uh, ministered to several Scandinavian congregations, and these parishes were St. Olaf's in Eschepen, probably pronounced that wrong, and a Scandinavian parish in Pine Lake, the former eventually closing and the latter, dividing with the Episcopal remnant becoming Holy Innocents Episcopal Church in Neshota Village, <clears throat> which I think may be around today. Uh, the annual report of 1984 convention also informs us of three Roman Catholic Anglican discussions that gath gathered throughout that year, which, quote, provided the opportunity for lively and informative exchange and encouraged the enthusiasm, especially of the lay participants, unquote. So, uh, however that was implemented, uh, however that came to be, I don't know. <laughs> but ecumenical work with the Roman Catholics as well as other apostolic and, I'll say, small c Catholic Christian bodies dated back to the bishopric of Donald Halleck, one of Milwaukee's most notable bishops who held the office from 1953 to 1973 before retiring. Bishop Halleck was present for a joint worship between bodies involved in the International Congress of the Episcopal American Church Union. <clears throat> now, what is that? That was a Congress made of apostolic Christian bodies that did not recognize the supreme authority of the Pope. So it was a lot of, I say, uh, was it Eastern, sorry, East, okay, West, some Western Orthodox bodies, some certain Eastern European church bodies, uh, maybe the old Catholic churches, you know, so all these different apostolic churches are considered themselves apostolic. Now, this is a thing. Okay. I'm just going to rant here for a little Apostolic, in my opinion, means it's, there's two dimensions to it. There's the visible sign of leadership and people, followers um, of Jesus, having leaders that before them had leaders that go back to the apostles, apostolic succession. But apostolic succession is also a sign of apostolicity is also in the substance, too. It's not in just the order of the church, it's the substance. The substance being that Jesus Christ has died to save the world, the gospel. Right. That's what apostol and I feel that sometimes when you uh subordinate one to the other, the the substance to the order or the order to the substance and issues arise. But I'll get off my okay, I digress. Uh anyways, these different apostolic bodies, uh they gathered in the Chicago Stadium for this meeting of this international congress. There's over ten thousand people attended and the sacrament was shared. Interesting. So Present for the worship were representatives. Okay, so here's some of the church bodies I had noted. The Polish National Catholic Church, the Greek Orthodox Diocese of North and South America, the Romanian Orthodox Episcopate in America, and Old Catholic Churches of the Netherlands, Germany, and Switzerland. <clears throat> Bishop Halleck served as the chair of the Interchurch Conference in Milwaukee as well as they tackled issues of 
uh, uh, race. And, uh, and you, so they had, a uh, uh, 38 representatives from Jewish, Roman Catholic, Protestant, and Eastern Orthodox, uh, faiths at this. So, and, uh, he was very much an activist in the civil rights movement. Uh, this is an area where he said, quote, this is an area we must stand and be counted. <clears throat> the Anglican communion has expressed itself over and over again in Lambeth conferences and general conventions that God made men to have equal rights and opportunities regardless of color. When individual Anglican clergy and lay deny these rights and opportunities, they're acting in a manner that is distinctly less than the religion they profess. And there are no two ways about it. Sociologically, however, we have to acknowledge the long history behind individual attitudes and relations and try with sympathy and understanding to bring the backward to a better mind, unquote. And he also added, only by the most twisted interpretation of the Bible could Christians justify racial and religious segregation, unquote. <clears throat> it's from a news article. So he's passionate about that, a lifelong member of the NAACP, and also worked with Father Grappi, Gropi, Grappi, a lot of Episcopalians. Uh, I find a lot of uh, Episcopalians of a certain generation who grew up Catholic and uh, became Episcopalian. They know and love Father Grappi. Uh, Grappi was a very similar man to Bishop Halleck, uh, but much bigger scale because he, he was a Roman Catholic leader, even local, that brought you more attention than uh, being in a local Episcopal church leader, especially in a place like Milwaukee. Um, and Milwaukee County's had its history of racial tension. Um, and I've talked to clergy from the older generation who were involved with uh, uh, healing that and, um, you know, and and bringing reconciliation in those efforts. Uh, I talked to the priest who, who marched with Bishop Hallett. Halleck and Father Gropi on several occasions. Uh, and so, uh, also, we will t touch on women's ordination, controversial issue, <clears throat> and liturgical renewal. So, cover both of these. So, by the late 60s and 70s, uh, the question of whether the priesthood had to be exclusively male became a center topic of debate in the Episcopal Church. This question developed out of the concern for women's exclusion in other areas of important decision-making in the church as well. Uh, but in many of these areas, women had success with the help of male allies who supported their cause in securing eligibility to be on the House of Deputies. This is one of the two. Uh, <laughs> the Episcopal Church national level has kind of a bicameral. Uh, we're we're kind of like Congress in a way. We have a, it was not based on that. That's a myth, but it's a lot like it because we have a House of Bishops, House of Deputies. House of Deputies are a mix of clergy and lay uh, who vote on decision, you know, big decision making. And in 1970, women became eligible to be on it. Um, also, resolution passed that year eliminated distinction, distinctions between male deacons and female diaconesses. Diaconesses has been a large part of a lot of Christian traditions. My denomination I grew up in, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, still has a male-only priesthood, but they've had diaconesses for a long time. Uh, so uh, the Episcopal Church combined it into one holy order in 1970 uh, and set aside ministry that would be comprised of both men and women. Or set, a, okay, it set up a ministry that would, uh, the diaconate, now became comprised of both men and women. 
At the General Convention of 1973, an amendment to the national canons was proposed to open the priesthood to women. It did not pass the House of Deputies by technicality, as the divided votes from the diocesan deputies counted as negative, thus outnumbering yes votes when combined with no. Regardless, three retired bishops of the church um, made uh, arranged to ordain 11 women to the transitional diaconate. Anyways, this is famously known as the Philadelphia 11. Upon the ordination of this group, our recently installed bishop successor, uh, the right Reverend Charles Gaskell of Milwaukee, took serious issue. Gaskell joined uh, bishops in Springfield and in Eau Claire and in Fond du Lac, the other Episcopal diocese of, of Milwaukee. Uh, and signing a letter uh, accusing the presiding bishop of the time to be brought up on charges uh, for what they interpret as a violation of the call to follow the discipline of the Episcopal Church, as set forth in Article 8 of the Constitution in page 55, sorry, 555, of the form of ordaining or concentrating a bishop in the Book of Common Prayer, a violation of Article 2.3 of the Constitution for going out of one's Episcopal jurisdiction to take part in the Episcopal Act, among other deemed violations of the discipline and the order of the church. Look, I fully support women's ordination, but there were reasons why that move was controversial at the time. Um, and so Bishop Gaskell also took part in a gathering of the Church of the Ascension in Chicago of 250 Episcopalians and 15 of his fellow bishops in the Episcopal Church. The bishops prepared a document titled An Evangelical and Catholic Covenant indicated their conviction that the priesthood is meant to be exclusively uh, male. Uh, saying the ordination of women to the episcopate and priesthood provides no assurance of apostolic authority for Eucharistic consecration, ordination, and absolution and blessing. Therefore, we will not accept the sacramental acts of this new ministry, unquote. So that uh, objection they had, that you see more of the underlying theology there. And it's very Oxford theology. Now, obviously, there are certain Protestant groups that don't ordain women, and they have their own justification for it as well. Uh, not saying agree with any of it, but in that statement, you see very much an Oxford movement theology. You know, uh, there has to, you know, the priest has to have the apostolic authority to consecrate the bread and wine, right? Um, right. There's that whole, that trans, that comfort, that transfer of transfer, conferring grace, uh, from the hands of one leader to another, uh, passing along that. Great, the great. It's almost like the infused grace thing. I mean, hopefully, this is all coming together in the minds of our listeners. That a lot of this, these different theological points are all connected, and there's a distinct flavor about uh, this infused type of grace, both in the baptized believers and their long lifelong Christian life, and in the consecrated and ordained people who go on to live and lead in their ordained life. So, and the emphasis on their is very much an Oxford movement, Anglo-Catholic thing. And not so much. There's different theologies of ordination and different theologies of baptism in other parts of Christianity. And so, uh, just to make a theological point. Now we'll get into the liturgical renewal. During the 1970s, uh, the Standing Liturgical Commission of the Episcopal Church, they were entrusted with preparing a revision of the Book of Common Prayer. At this time, they were still, of course, using the 1928 prayer book, and so this process we're talking about, uh, or the product of it was the 1979 Book of Common Prayer, which you will see in the pews of an Episcopal church today. 
In addition to the mixed reception in the church at the time of women's ordination, uh, the 70s uh, was kind of a period of confusion, I heard one person tell me, <laughs> who lived through it, uh, due to the mixed reception to prayer book revision. Some people were very much for it, some people were very much against it. Uh, you mentioned that some clergy understood the theology behind the prayer book renewal and supported it, while others did not. Um, uh, the priest at the church I was a part of, Trinity Episcopal Church in Wauwatosa, during the 80s, was very adamant about not using the 79 prayer book. They still use the 28 prayer book for some time. Of course, today they use the 79 prayer book. They have been for a while. Um, and uh, so, though, uh, and, and another uh, important point about liturgical renewal, there was a church in Wisconsin um, that was very much, had a pivotal role in this Um there was a, uh, a church called Gra yeah Grace Episcopal Church in Madison. It was it. It's still there. It's still a active church. Uh, was on the forefront of the liturgical uh, movement as far back as the 1950s and 60s. Though it was typically known as an Anglo-Catholic parish, they became very experimental during this period with trying out new worship. And uh, they they were also part of a voluntary group called Associated Parishes. Um. Influential Episcopal liturgist H. Boone Porter was a part of this group and also a longtime faculty member of Neshota House. So there's kind of this group, and, and there's a show—I'm going to put it in a show note. Grace, Grace had a conference. I have a—there's a whole book for uh, they, they put this conference, the transcript of it, in a book form. They had a conference of four—I think the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church at the time, H. Boone Porter, two other Episcopal faculty or faculty, clergy, clergy leaders, theologians of the, you know, well, I think they were all all those, <laughs> and then interestingly, uh, the Lutheran theologian Arthur Carl Peepcorn, um, who is a fascinating theologian. I'm going to do a whole episode on that guy one day. They got together and discussed, uh, and more of us in a very, it was more of a scholarly uh, get together. <clears throat> what liturgical renewal was, what it came from. Um, you know, it's a whole. I mean, we're going to do an episode actually on liturgical renewal uh like the oxford movement it's got some uh it, it's kind of helped with <laughs> providing a narrative that's not always accurate of um of it, it's got a historiography i guess you could say that's not always uh it's that's not always accurate and so but it's basically it was a renewal movement uh to try to go back to uh more not primitive but early forms of worship um and a lot of the a lot of uh, people that are very devoted to uh, Cramner's language of the initial prayer books, as well as some people from the more evangelical wing of the Episcopal Anglican world, take some issue. Especially if there's any group of people, uh, they they take they take especially some issue with the liturgical renewal movement. But anyways, I digress. Um, it's 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 a very comp. I mean, like all the developments in theology and church history. Things just are, you know, there's so many angles you go at it with, so many facets. But, um, but basically, uh, Grace Church in Madison, Wisconsin, was on the forefront of this. And um, also, there is a book, I'm going to put a footnote to, uh, there was a deacon who served at Grace Church for some time who wrote a ghost story. Ooh, I need to stop doing that. Um, that wrote a ghost story about Grace Church. 
about Jackson's Kemper. Could you not? Jackson Kemper's ghost, it's totally fiction. It was not based on anything real. Jackson Kemper's ghost haunting Grace Church with fears of things in modern culture, uh, taking people's minds and the world off Jesus. And he's there to help guide the church. The ghost comes to, again, I didn't read the book. It's like, this is a synopsis of it. He's guiding the church to, uh, imp- to, uh, you know, the church speaks out against this. And, um, so it's interesting, <laughs> interesting historical note. There's, there's been a couple ghost, uh, references in this thing. So, um, so anyways, present day, the present day, uh, the Episcopal Diocese of Milwaukee comprises 56 parishes, 177 clergy and 15,000 communicants. Uh, current bishop is, uh, he's a provisional bishop, Bishop Jeffrey Lee, uh, who was bishop of Episcopal Diocese of Chicago for quite some time, recently retired from that, and he's serving as provisional bishop while they find a bishop for Milwaukee, or at least I think that's um, the current case, but he is the provisional, provisional bishop. And uh, he's also written some good liturgical um, introductions for uh, for just for lay members, a general audience, uh, especially as you newcomers to the Episcopal Church, why we use the prayer book, why we do the certain things we do. Um, and before he, him was right Reverend Bishop Stephen Miller, who was the 11th bishop. He was bishop from 2003, retired recently. Overall, the diocese has a rich history, unique culture and ethos that one senses in its parish sanctuaries, the grounds of Neshota, the windows of St. John's Chapel at Decoven Center, and the theological richness to be found in the great minds and persons that have come and gone, and or can be presently found resident in the diocese. Much more could be discovered about this diocese. We're just giving a snapshot, a very long snapshot. I think this is our longest episode to date. But if anyone's interested, you can always send us an email. I might have more info on it. Um, but both uh, the Episcopal Church, uh, both the national diocesan levels, and to and uh, have have embodied a spirit of pioneer churchmanship and theology, and I think uh, the story of Milwaukee. Uh, not to so, sound all super triumphalist, but um, has really embodied that spirit, and so. Uh, you know, I just think this is, again, this is just one little snapshot. I mean, there's many dioceses in the Episcopal Church. Um, I've personally been a part of uh, really, really two officially, uh, but have been around, visited different churches, know people from different parts of the church, and they could always, you know, we would be interested in doing another diocesan history of another diocese if that's ever, if that's the particular interest, if you're a listener who has uh, contributed to this area or just has a lot of knowledge about it or knows how to go about getting knowledge for about it. I would totally, totally welcome you on the show. That'd be great. Um, you know, uh, South, I mean, we did one on, we kind of did a die. It wasn't so much a diocesan history. It was a story of Bishop Polk. Again, I recommend people to that episode. if They want to learn about the Episcopal church in the South, uh, with Cheryl White. We talked about that. So, but uh, I'm about out of breath, and we will be back on next month. We have two episodes in August, and I just uh, appreciate everyone tuning in, listening. God bless you all, and take care, and enjoy the rest of your summers. And we will see you all uh, when we're back on. God bless. 
Hi, and thank you for listening. This is Reverend Andrew Christensen again. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and don't forget to check out our previous episodes of Doff Protest Too Much. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or another streaming service that lets you rate and review our show, please do so. Five stars, one star, however you honestly feel, we can take it and would love and appreciate your feedback. Also, for any further questions or suggestions for our show, please email me at dothprotesttomuchpodcast at gmail.com. God bless your day.